Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. Today, I'm joined by my friend Mackenzie Rowe. In this episode, Mackenzie discusses growing up in Coronado and how her family made every house a home, even during her high school years when they were frequently on the move. Next, we discuss Mackenzie's heart condition and how it took about five doctors until she could find someone who both believed her and who could help to diagnose the issue. From there, we discuss the book Many Lives, Many Masters and the impact it has had on Mackenzie's journey. We then talk about Mackenzie's experience with sexual assault during her first week of college, how that event impacted her in the immediate aftermath and in the years since the assault, and how she leveraged exposure therapy as a healing modality. Next, we discuss Mackenzie's encounters with spirits throughout her life and why our society is so reluctant to accept firsthand accounts of supernatural beings. We then discuss the concept of non-locality of consciousness and how the term schizophrenia has been used to dismiss people who've encountered supernatural entities. We end the conversation talking about how Mackenzie has incorporated crystals and Reiki healing into her spiritual practice. Please enjoy. Mackenzie, how are you? I am doing great. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Well, super excited to have you on the podcast tonight. Why don't we kick things off with you giving a little bit of background on yourself to the listeners and we can take the conversation from there. Okay, sounds good. Well, my name is Mackenzie Rowe. I grew up on an island off San Diego called Coronado, California. I moved to Denver maybe four years ago, which is when I met Jordan. I am in tech sales and I love my job. (laughs) Everything, you know, has been going pretty well so far for me. Now, what was it like growing up in Coronado? It was a unique way of growing up because like the island in total has like 23,000 people. So it's pretty small, but over half of that is a Navy base. And so I didn't go to school on the island for very long, only for maybe three years tops. And then I went to school over the bridge. And so it was interesting because like everywhere you go, like you ride your bike to on the island. And like I'm the third generation to have been born on Coronado for my family. So going to the grocery store, I'll see three people I went to kindergarten with. I'll see my grandfather and likely another sibling of mine. <laughs> so it's, it's a very small place to grow up. But like you're a couple blocks away from the beach and it's pretty amazing the entire time. And you don't really realize that until you move away. So I loved it, but I don't think I realized that when I was actually living there until now looking back in retrospect. And you mentioned that you're a third generation Coronadan. Were you in the same house as your prior relatives? So yes. So the first house, the house that I was born into, my grandfather lived in. And then my parents remodeled the house, built built one up. And then when they had my brother's twins, the house was too small. <laughs> so they, they bought the plot next door from like from another family member. So on that plot of land, two generations of my family had lived there prior to us. But then we tore down that house and they built up their dream home on that plot of land. And that's where I grew up for a few years (laughs) of my childhood. And where were you those not few years? Yeah. (laughs) So I am the daughter of two entrepreneurs. So life changes fast (laughs) when that's kind of your lifestyle. And so we went back and forth between the first house that I was born into, the house that they built. And then in 2008, around the time of the recession, we did a lot of moving. I think we did probably 12 houses in a period of three months at one point. So it was just whatever house that was available for rent that could fit all of us. We'd rent for periods of time. 
you know, sometimes over the summer, since we rent out our house to people who come in from Arizona or Mexico or something like that, we'd stay in hotels or, you know, whatever really was available. So that's when I wasn't in the house, it was kind of a bounce around situation. Yeah. What was that bounce around situation like? It was interesting. I was in ninth grade at the time. So it was kind of exciting, honestly, because like my mom and dad were very good at making any place that we were at a home because it was kind of like our mentality was wherever the family is, that's where our home is. It's not necessarily like the house that you were born in is your home for the rest of your life. No, it's like wherever your siblings, your parents, everyone you love is, that's where your home is. And so my mom was really really good at turning wherever we were into a home very quickly. And I mean, you got to spend a lot of good time with with your siblings and everybody else. So it was interesting, but it was a little bit rocky at some times because, you know, it's not like you have a regular place that you can always go back to. Sometimes it's a friend's house or, you know, wherever you're staying at that time. But luckily, you know, I was in high school. It's not like I was in college coming back home, not knowing where I was going. So, so yeah, that's how it went. And has your perspective on that time period changed as you've gotten older? Yes, it has. Because at the time, you know, when 2008 hit, nobody really knew what was going to happen with the Great Recession. It was just kind of like, oh, shit is hitting the fan hard. Let's see how this goes. And so we didn't really know how long it was going to be or like what the process was, if we were going to get to keep the house or what that kind of looked like. So I think during it, it was a little bit scary. But now looking back you get a totally different perspective on like how your parents work to keep that literally the roof above your head, like how they, how much effort they put into their jobs and whatever venture they're working on at the time. You just get a whole new perspective for it because you see things, you know, at the, at the bottom and then you see them at the very top, like absolutely killing it, you know? And so I think it was good to get the perspective of things not going so well because things were lovely for my entire childhood. And I had a great childhood, you know, things just, it's like a roller coaster. There are really good times and then there are some worse times. And so looking back on it now, I'm happy we had the worst times because it really made me dedicate myself to like buying a house by the time I was 24 and getting a good job where I could like fully support myself and not really have to worry about anybody else. Whereas if I hadn't had that experience, maybe it wouldn't have been such a high priority for me. Would it be fair to say that you gained a lot of your drive in your work ethic from your parents? A hundred percent. Yes. My parents are the hardest working people I have ever met. My dad is a serial entrepreneur, so he's always starting new ventures or finding companies to franchise and then just franchising them all over the country. And he's really, really good at it. My mom had her own gym. She's a personal trainer. She does her own thing. And she was also a rock star mom for all of us. And so the dedication that they they put into what they decide to do 100% has had an effect on me and all my siblings because we really put that same drive towards everything we do now. And I don't think failure is an option for us. (laughs) We'll figure it out. It doesn't matter how we get there, but we'll figure it out. (laughs) That's amazing. And I can certainly attest to, you know, having seen what, what your what your work ethic looks like firsthand. And so you mentioned some of the different businesses your father started and franchises. And one of the ones that we actually got to go check out firsthand was Float Tanks. And so would love if you would just talk more about that, what that is and and your father's business and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was back in 2014, my father found the business True Rest Franchising. And so he actually found out about it by one of his buddies who was a Navy SEAL. 
he was suffering from PTSD and a variety of other things, but that's the one that stuck out the most to me. And he would float in this sensory deprivation chamber, which for those of you who don't know, it's about 12 inches of salt water or 12 inches of water with a thousand pounds of Epsom salt dissolved into it. And it's heated to your body temperature. So when you're laying in it, you can't quite tell where your skin ends, where the water starts. And so the Epsom salts take effect on your body basically. And it helps you to recover a lot faster, to heal from whatever it is you're dealing with. And like a good example is if you sleep in the pod, like you could be asleep for 50 minutes, but to your body, it'll feel like something like three hours. Mm-hmm. Numbers wise, that might not be exactly right, but like that's the concept. And like in the Navy, they will float or do a, um, a practice run. I don't know what it's called. You know, like they'll, they'll practice something. They'll go float. And when they come back, all of their KPIs are significantly higher than mm-hmm. they were prior to floating. So it allows them to visualize what the practice is, how they want to improve, and then actually do that when mm-hmm. they get out of floating. And so my father learned about this business and he ended up taking it over. He's the CEO and he ended up franchising it all over the country. And so now they have franchises open in California to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my sister works for him too. And so, yeah, they've really dove right in. My mom owns her own spa in San Diego as well. So now it's a full family business. <laughs> my brother even helps them from the real estate perspective. So it's definitely been an interesting path, but I'm so proud of everything that they've done for that business because they've been working on it now for what, like seven years, something like that, wow. which is kind of crazy because I'm used to seeing him, you know, starting new things and moving around. And this one, they've just been going at for a while now and seeing their success pay off is amazing. And do you like to float yourself? I do. So they don't have a true rest open in Denver yet, which is such a bummer. But there are some other float spas like the one I took you to that, you know, do the trick. (laughs) So I go in there uh, every once in a while and I get my float on, which is great because I myself have PTSD and anxiety and a few other things that, you know, relate to my heart condition. That floating helps with like in a massive way. So every time I float, I can feel all of those changes. I just have to remember to make the time to go float because sometimes I'm like, oh, massage sounds good (laughs) instead, you know? So it's all about priorities. Yeah. Well, you know, as long as you're getting into self-care, whatever works, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you mentioned your heart condition. Could you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yes. So back in 2018, I moved to Denver in May. And I was working out like quite a bit at that point, like a lot of HIIT workouts. And I kept noticing like I would lose vision while I was working out. And I would mention it to some friends and they'd be like, oh, it's the altitude. You know, your body won't get used to it. And like having grown up on an island, so sea level, (laughs) I was like, oh, that makes sense. Done. I'll keep working out just as hard and I'll be okay. Well, I ended up doing one workout where I pushed it a little bit too hard. And I would say like 12 minutes into this HIIT workout, I lost my vision and my hearing and my mouth tasted like iron, like really badly tasted like iron. And my heart rate stayed above 200 for about three hours that day. And so I called my friend who's a nurse and I was like, you need to come pick me up. Like, I can't see. We need to go to the emergency room and figure out what's going on. And long story short, you know, it took like five doctors for someone to finally, number one, take me seriously because I kept being told that I was being dramatic. I was being, you know, whatever the case may be. And finally, that doctor was, he's my uncle, actually. He's the head of cardiothoracics at UCSD. And he said, you know, give me a list of your symptoms. I sent him over and he was like, oh, get tested for POTS. Like, I think that's what it is. POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And so he told me to get tested for that. I went into my doctor. I said, please test me for POTS. And they said, no, none of your symptoms point to that. And I was like, okay, well, I'm paying for the test. Give it to me. (laughs) So they strapped me onto this tilting table. 
They basically said it can take anywhere, you know, up to three or four hours to see if you actually have POTS. And it's really just if you're showing the symptoms, we make a make an educated guess as to whether it is POTS or it is not. And seven minutes in, once they had tilted me to whatever the degree angle was, I blacked out and I was like very nauseated, like a very close to throwing up. I couldn't see. I was so dizzy. And then I woke back up because at some point I blacked out during that process. And when I woke back up, I just heard the doctor, you know, who was performing the test on the phone with my cardiologist saying, without a doubt, this is what she has. And so sure enough, POTS is what I have (laughs) and something else that we haven't quite figured out yet. So I'm still in the process of figuring out what those symptoms are and what doesn't relate to POTS because there aren't enough people that have POTS to know what goes with that condition versus what is this other thing and what's in the middle that maybe belongs to both. So that is where we are at in my health journey. (laughs) Has that been a difficult journey for you? It hasn't been easy because it's not really something that a ton of people experience. I guess some people do, just none of my friends do. And so it's difficult having to go into the hospital and, you know, get a stomach tube put in or like get a heart monitor strapped to yourself and have people like constantly asking you what everything is for. It's like, I don't really know what it's for because I don't know what my condition is. So it hasn't been the best, but, you know, I found ways to work around it. I now have like a very consistent workout schedule that I can do that works with my autonomic disorder. So it's not like... I'm totally bedridden anymore because I was for a little while because the nausea is just overwhelming. And every time you stand up, you can't see for a few seconds. And I think until you can get used to that, it's hard to kind of adjust your life to work with it. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a fun couple years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like you're making progress and at least starting to hopefully figure out, you know, what ways that you can appropriately work with the symptoms of the the illness, even if you can't yet pinpoint exactly what's causing it. Exactly. Yeah. There are definitely things that I can do like diet wise, workout wise, floating wise, like all Mm -hmm. of those things help mitigate all my symptoms. Mm -hmm. So as long as I can like stay focused on that and not do any of like the fun things like drinking and stuff like that, that maybe make my symptoms worse, I'll be okay. We've talked a lot about the book, Many Lives, Many Masters, and how important that's been for your journey. So we'd love if you could just Talk about what that book's about, how you came across it, and, and how it's you know, impacted your life. Yeah. So the author of Many Lives, Many Masters, his theory is that through past life regression therapy, you're able to heal your present self. That's the mantra, I guess you could say. And so his first book, it follows the story of a woman who in her current life, she has like a a fear of confined spaces, a fear of water. She's always afraid of like things going on behind her, things like that. And she starts doing this past life regression therapy with David Weiss. And as they're going through all of these sessions, she's able to travel back into her previous lives and understand why her current self is experiencing some of the fears and anxieties that she does. And so a good example of this is apparently one of her previous lives was in, I want to say like she was in ancient Greece. Okay. And she got a very bad illness. And so she was set into this like cave type area with everyone else who had the same illness. And they were basically put in there to pass away. And that was why, that's why they're put there. They like closed, they closed it up with like a very big rock is the way that she described it. Almost like a a very archaic, like quarantine in a sense. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So kind of like that. 
but you were put in there once it was determined that you were dying. Uh -huh. So it's not really like, oh, maybe they come out. It's no, you're, you're put in there and then you basically die. Mm -hmm. And she said that she remembers sitting there and then she remembers rising above herself and she saw herself and it wasn't her present form. It was a different form, like a woman with different color hair, different color skin, but that was just her body in this previous life. And she saw herself rise out of it. And after this session where she was able to explain this story to David, she woke up from the hypnosis state that she was in and she no longer had a fear of confined spaces. Mm. And so it turns out that the, you know, his theory was correct in her case where she was able to just kind of acknowledge like why she might be afraid of confined spaces in this life. And it's because she was put in a confined space to pass away from an illness in a previous life. And so, you know, they worked together for years and years and years and turns out they'd actually met each other a bunch of times in these previous lives, whether he be a teacher or her mother or, you know, someone else, he was there in a bunch of her lives, which I think is why they were able to meet in this life and come to the realization of, okay, past life regression therapy, like people need to know about this and it needs to become a more popular type of therapy or people need to just utilize it more because it could have such a strong impact on people's lives today if they're suffering from extreme anxiety of any variety of things. And so that's the concept of Many Lives, Many Masters. And so why did that book resonate with you? Well, I guess, when did I find that book? I think I started reading it when I was in college. My aunt recommended it to me. And so I was reading it then and like I was kind of struggling with anxiety and I don't really know the purpose of my anxiety and I'm very much so. I like to see things, know the reason and then work off that information. I'm not really like a, which is shocking considering like my beliefs about everything is I'm very just like, I like to see the facts. And so anyways, when I was reading this book, I was like, okay, this is very interesting. I have a lot of anxieties about, you know, these variety of things. I wonder what my past lives held or what happened in my previous lives that could lead me to having those fears and anxieties today. And I guess another important part of the book or of his theory is that when you start your first life, you, you are like a trash human. <laughs> it's not a very nice thing to say, but you're the type that probably has no empathy, no sympathy. You could kill and not really feel bad about it. And it's because you're working from such a, I guess, high level. You're working with your masters, which if you're more of a traditional religious person, that might be like your God, right? So you're working with your God or your masters to learn the lesson that your current life is designed to learn. And so for them, it could literally be learning what empathy is, learning what sympathy is. Whereas then, you know, once they pass away, like the thought is that you pass away once you learn that lesson. And so you can then move on to your next life. And then whatever that soul's mission is, the lesson that you need to learn in that lifetime, your master will help you work through whatever that lesson may be. And then once you've learned that lesson, you can pass away and move on to your next life. And I thought that there was a lot of peace in that because each person you don't really know what your lesson is to learn in life, right? Like we don't know. We, we can ponder it as much as we want, but I believe that everyone has a set of lessons, a set of things that they have to do, quote unquote have to do because willpower exists. But like these things will happen to you regardless of how you get there. And then once, you know, your soul learns those lessons, you can move on. And once you get to that last lesson for everyone, it's a little bit different. You can then ascend and become one of the masters helping other people mm -hmm. through their lessons and through their life. And so I liked the theory of that because I was going through a lot when I was in college and I liked the fact that there was a bigger picture and something leading me along the way. Yeah. And maybe some of the things that happened to me were because that was one of the lessons that I needed to learn. 
And so then did you do past life regression therapy? No, I haven't done it yet. And the reason why is because it's hard to find a very trusted provider who can hypnotize you and take you through these past lives without taking advantage, so to speak. Mm. And so I want to be very careful about who I go through that process with. I prefer to work off referrals. And so every therapist I talk to, I'm like, so do you know anybody who does past life regression therapy? And for the most part, people just aren't trained on it. So they can't do it. And I have no interest in like, in meeting up with someone who like says that they know how to do it, whatever. And then really they have ulterior motives. And so it's been difficult for me to find someone, but I'm still, still on the search. And every once in a while I go deep in that rabbit hole and I find some options, but I haven't pulled the trigger yet. And you mentioned that you're going through a lot in college. Can you expand on that? Yes. So my first week of college, I had made a new friend from California. Um, I went to school in North Carolina. So there weren't many of us. I think there were three total, but I had met this new friend And through a series of events, I ended up being sexually assaulted by that person, like in my own dorm room in the first week of college. So I'll spare you the details of that. But as that happened, it changes your perspective on a lot because I had just moved out of quote unquote, my childhood home, because we just heard that story. But I just moved out of like my childhood home where my parents were always there. You know, I went to a school where there weren't a ton of dangerous things going on, you know? And then all of a sudden you're thrown into a college environment where you know no one. And it's my default to trust people, or it was, I should say. And so I trusted the people that I was with. And so I was like, yeah, you know, you want to go to this party? You want to go hang out with these friends? Sure. I would love to make new friends. And I just learned, unfortunately, very quickly that that is not how you should go about doing things. It works for some people, but it didn't work for me. And so luckily I had had some other good friends that I had met a week prior (laughs) who were willing to help me through that. And so I was able to find them the next morning as soon as I realized what had happened and realized is a strong word. Like I knew something had happened because there was blood and some other things that alluded to what might have gone down and bruises and such. Anyways, and so I found my friend and she helped me through figuring out what all happened, how I was going to get like my mind right and back into a good place, find a therapist, go to the, all of the, centers that you need to go to like title nine the hospital that kind of thing to get all those boxes checked and so yeah that's that's the main event that I was referring to and so from that there was a decent amount of anxiety and just stress that comes with your first year of college and so I don't really know if it came from that event or if it came from my first year of college but either way dealing with both of those was a lot for you know a year and a half it still impacts me today but I would say it was pretty bad that first year because you just kind of default to being a person that you don't really want to be when you're in such a defensive mode all the time. And so it took me a long time to reprogram like how I wanted to react to situations. I feel like I've got kind of a grasp on it now, but not always, you know, like we all slip up. And so, yeah, that's what happened. Was that a factor when you decided to leave Wake Forest? So there were a variety of reasons why I decided to leave Wake Forest. I won't say that it didn't have an effect on it, but I had wanted to go to Texas Christian since I was a sophomore in high school. I had wanted to go there for a while, but I got into Wake Forest. It was a very exciting opportunity for me at the time. It was a great school. So I was like, yeah, like, let's do it. I like the concept of going to a school with like 4,500 kids. Like it was pretty small. And then I learned the downside of that pretty quickly. (laughs) So anyways, when I decided I wanted to transfer, It wasn't even a question. I only applied to one school and it was TCU. And once I got in, I called my parents up. I told them I was transferring and we moved me out like the next month. So it was all a very quick process. Like we were just talking about this, but I make a lot of gut decisions. Like as soon as I know something 
is right for me, my gut tells me immediately and I just make the move because I know that that's what I should be doing and something just tells me to go do it, so I go do it. <laughs> Did your parents know about the assault? My mother knew about the assault. My father learned about it when I told them I was transferring. I actually wasn't the first one to tell him. My mother did. So my mom shared that with him because I think she wanted him to better understand why I was leaving the college, which again, it wasn't the only reason, but it was a reason. So she shared that with him and then I was able to talk him through everything that had happened. But I did not tell them at first because I wasn't totally sure of what had happened, mostly because like it comes back to you a little bit later sometimes. And so, and I hadn't just wrapped my head around it. And it's hard to explain the situation when you don't have a firm grasp on what it actually was yourself. So once I understood, I was able to share it with my mother. And then I decided I didn't want to get pulled out of school. I really badly wanted to be able to stay at Wake Forest to prove to everybody that I could do it. But then I realized that wasn't worth my mental health. If I want to leave, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and so him, like my father, understanding that that was one of the reasons why I needed to leave, I think helped in him wrapping his head around my leaving Wake Forest to go to TCU. It's a hard thing to tell your parents, though, like that that has happened because it's, you know, like it, it all depends on the way you phrase it, the way you frame it, everything like that. And at the time, like the Me Too movement, I think just started that year. So it wasn't like a huge thing that was talked about. The Rolling Stones article had just come out and then there was all the controversy because most of it ended up being fake, I think. What was that one? The Rolling Stones one. There was a, an article written about a woman who was sexually assaulted at University of Virginia uh, um, yeah. at a frat house. Mm -hmm. And turns out, like, I don't obviously know the truth of what happened, but it sounds like there was maybe some details that were fuzzy. And I don't know if that was on her part or the reporter's part or what happened, but... Either way, the story had a big impact on people right when it was released. And then very slowly, things started to like be recanted, I guess you could say. And so it didn't have the same effect on people six months later, which I think is around the time that this all happened to me. And so it was a little bit like, oh, well, she lied. So it wasn't real. It's like, okay, well, are people going to think that about me? And like, I'm rushing a sorority in six months. And like, I realize how superficial that sounds. But when you're a freshman in college, it's like, okay, well, Greek life is huge here. I want to make sure that I get in and I'm not seen as the girl who had sex with someone on accident and then decided to call sexual assault. Like, I didn't want to be that person. And obviously that's not what I was doing still isn't but the way that it's perceived by people at that time especially is drastically different than the way that it is now yeah. where I like to think that women are given more of the benefit of the doubt at this point which has its own pros and cons but at my time it was like a big red flag on you if you were the one to call sexual assault on someone and it's just so insane how like culturally it's so pervasive the whole victim blaming where people's default response can be like, oh, is she lying? Or it's like... Oh, she was then, drunk. Like, yeah. oh, what was she wearing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> those things, like, although they seem so cliche, it's like, those are the first questions I get asked when people ask me about my assault. It's like, oh, well, were you at a party? Okay, well, yeah, I was at a party for a part of it. But then afterwards, I was super not at a party. I was in my own dorm room. That should be your safe space. And it wasn't. And then also then it's, you know, if you, like you said, you're... A freshman in college, like you care about being liked and being in the sorority. And so then if you decide not to report it then, but later do so, then people are like, well, why didn't you report it back then? Right. And oh, now yeah. they think you're lying because of that. It's just, it's such a, it's such a disappointing approach that we take to sexual assault in general. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge lose, lose situation is what I call it. Cause I would say by the time I was a junior in college, so I had transferred, transferred already. That's when I decided that I might want to pursue something. 
And so I started looking into what Wake Forest had documented and that kind of thing. Cause I wasn't, I didn't report it when I was at Wake. Someone else actually reported it on my behalf because they lived in the same dorm as him and they heard him bragging about having gotten away with it. And so they, yeah. And unfortunately my name was used by, by him when he was bragging about it. And so it was reported to Title IX and I then was reached out to and was told you should come in and tell us what happened. Like somebody anonymously reported it, but like, we'd really like to hear your side of the story. And so by the time I went in, you know, I had a conversation with them about it, but I still didn't want to pursue anything. And by the time I left, and came back and asked what proof they had, that kind of thing. I was told that it was never reported. The case didn't exist. I even went back into my email to see if I could find the email that said, please come in, this person anonymously reported. I lost access to my email that day, and I couldn't find anything. The university did a very good job in covering everything up. Wow. Yeah. So that was tough. <laughs> was was it wasn't Wake Forest, but didn't another school recently get caught doing that, or there's a big investigation of them covering stuff up? I wouldn't be surprised, but the one that I most recently heard about was Wake Forest readmitting someone who was expelled for sexual assault. And then they readmitted him a few years later to finish his degree. And so there were huge protests on campus and I'm sure elsewhere, but I saw the ones that were on campus. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think I told my story of what had happened on Instagram stories or something like that because the amount of times that this happens to people and people just don't know about it I would have never known that they would go to such lengths to make sure that I didn't get anything that I needed if I wanted to pursue charges or anything of that manner I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is up at this point anyways which is a whole separate issue (laughs) but even if I wanted to pursue it when I was within the statute of limitations I had no evidence because the school would not pass anything over to me. And I don't know when I lost access to my email, but I remember I tried to find, I tried to go into my email at one point. And then after I tried to like dig some information up and then I had lost it. So I don't know at what point in that period of time I lost access, but it seemed a little bit pointed (laughs) when you're trying to find something that's like important to making your case. Cause I had pictures of, you know, a butterfly bruise that was on my neck. And a couple other bruises and stuff like that. But that's really all I had evidence-wise, like on my phone. Because I dropped my phone in the punch that day and was told that I wouldn't need, or that night, and was told I wouldn't need it. So my phone was left at the frat house that night. And I think that was also intentional on someone's part. (laughs) So when I woke up, I didn't have a phone. I didn't have phone numbers. I didn't have anything. And I didn't have any way to document any evidence, aside from going to the health center, which I did. But all that didn't exist anymore by the time I went back to ask for it. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, like looking back on it, because this all was when I was a junior, which was 2017. So like five years ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, but just shocking that that's the way that it was all handled. And thank you for being so open and honest about this. I know it's a really tough subject to talk about. So it's really beautiful that you shared your story. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to. I'm, I did a lot of exposure therapy. <laughs> so I, I can tell the whole story now without it impacting me too drastically, which is nice. Because, yeah, in the beginning, I probably wouldn't have been able to. And that was my goal anyways, because I'm, I mean, you know me. I'm an open book. Basically, if anyone asks me any questions, I'm happy to address them. But on this topic, I couldn't for a very long time. And that was really frustrating for me because I like to be in control of, you know, my emotions, my stories, my everything. And I wasn't able to. So I'm very proud that I now can. (laughs) And what is exposure therapy? So exposure therapy is basically 
in my terms, I guess you could say, because I'm not a therapist, is they had me walk through my story the first time, you know, I came in to see my therapist, Desiree, and I walked her through everything that had happened. She would ask some probing questions about the way that things looked, the way that things smelled, the way that things, the way that I perceived things, basically. And in between sessions, I was supposed to listen to that story. I believe it was once to twice a day. So I was supposed to just like overwhelm myself with this story. And then the next week I would tell the story again and it pulls more details out of your conscious or subconscious or I don't know how it works. But every time I told the story, more details came out and some of it, I think, came from her asking the questions. Some of it came from my just like being able to put myself in the situation because as you're telling it, you're supposed to put yourself there. So it's like I was walking from the car to my dorm room and he was there and I couldn't use the keys. So he was using the keys for me. You really have to put yourself in it and like use present tense. And so I did that therapy for quite some time until all of the details of the story were able to come out without my having too much difficulty saying it, I guess. And then, yeah, I guess by the end of it, the concept is, is that you're supposed to be so comfortable with the story that it no longer has an impact on Mm you like it did before. And you're supposed to feel the emotions that you're feeling during that event. And so those aren't even as overwhelming when you're starting to feel those. And so it helps a lot, I think, with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, which I was diagnosed with at the time. I haven't recently seen if I still have that, but, you know, I was diagnosed with it. And so it made sense for me at the time to walk through this event and just take away the impact that it has on my life. And I think I've been able to do that pretty successfully. Thanks to my therapist at the time. She's a gem. I still, you know, everyone should go to therapy. I need to go back to therapy because I think that you can always still benefit from new approaches and different ways of exploring everything that's going on in your mind because there's so much happening up there and you don't know how any of it works really. So it's nice to have someone guide you through it. So I'm actually in the process of finding a new therapist right now, but it's been an interesting journey (laughs) to find someone. I'm like, okay, I need you to specialize in these six things. How do you feel about that? (laughs) And some people are like, okay, you're crazy. We're just going to move on. (laughs) Like, that's why I need your help. (laughs) So anyways, I'm in that process right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe you can find one who could also do past life regression and double dab. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. That would make my life so easy. And so something we've talked about as well as, you know, I've gotten more into spirituality is your experience with supernatural entities or ghosts or however you want to refer to them. And so uh, I think it'd be great to learn about your story and those experiences. Yeah. Okay. So the first time that I ever encountered anything out of the normal, I guess I would say, I call them spirits for the most part, but this one was a little bit different than what I see today. And so it's, I don't know, I think about it differently, but growing up, in the second house that my parents built. So my my family had been on that plot for about two generations, and then my family built our house there. So, you know, it had seen a lot, (laughs) I would say. And I moved into my big sister's room when she left to go to college. And so I was in this room at the end of a hallway. And the way that the hallway was situated is there was about like two or three inches where you could see straight down the hallway to the staircase. And the staircase, you know, had like the typical railing with like the bars that go down to the floor. And I would stay up really late. Like I was a cheerleader, yearbook, all of the things. And so I would get back from school sometimes at like midnight or 2 a.m. Like I would stay pretty late. 
And I would lay in bed and I remember I forgot to close the door this one time and I looked down the hallway, down like those two or three inches, and there was a little girl like in, in a dress, like a pink dress, and she had really curly hair. And I was like, I don't have a little sister. <laughs> like, What's going on over there? And I just remember seeing her and being, she was kind of like gesturing me to come over and like come play with her. And I was like, absolutely not. Like (laughs) I'm not leaving my bed. I'm now frozen for the rest of the night until I wake up because I was like afraid of it, you know? Cause if it's not someone who you recognize, it's like, is there a stranger in the house or am I seeing a ghost? And so I went down the next day and I remember talking to my mom and I was like, mom, okay, I know how this is going to sound, but like, listen to what happened last night. And I told her the story that I just explained. And she said, okay, wait, wait, before you tell me anymore, go talk to your sister. And my sister was in college, right? So I call my sister and I tell her the story. And she goes, oh my God, you saw the little girl, didn't you? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, (laughs) we just know that there's this little girl ghost hanging out at the top of the stairs. And she was like, yeah, 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 go talk to Pilar. And Pilar is our nanny who's lived with us since I was very little. Mm -hmm. And so I went to go talk to Pilar and Pilar said, oh, the little girl who stands outside my door, because that's where Pilar's door is situated is right at the top of the stairs. And so everyone had seen this little girl And no one seemed to care. And it it was shocking to me because I was like, how are we just ignoring this? Like there is either a ghost living in our house or like a small (laughs) human like wandering the hallways. This should be, you know, more shocking to people. Anyways, and so I remember that being my first experience with it. But things got stepped up a notch when I moved into my apartment in Lodo, Denver, because I moved in there with two girls And it was the first week that we had moved in there. My roommate left to go to the grocery store or something. And I remember I had a blanket wrapped around me and I walked into my bedroom, closed and locked the door. And I threw that blanket on my pillows because I always like to put something over my eyes when I go to sleep because I like it to just be pitch black. Anyway, so I threw it on my pillows and I went in to take a shower. And there was a door between the shower and my bedroom. So I closed that door, took a shower. And when I came back out, I opened up that door and the blanket that I had just thrown on my pillows was suspended in midair from the fan to these lights that I had set up along the wall. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I scream for my roommate, but I'm like, you know, crap, she's at the grocery store. She's not going to be there. And within, you know, a couple seconds, I heard her walk in the front door. So I was like, amazing. Okay, Sammy, like get your ass in here and help me figure out what's going on. And she tried to get in and the door is locked. So now I'm like... The the front door or your bedroom? My bedroom door. And my bedroom door was locked. So I was like, okay, no one's been in there since I showered because the door was locked. So I open it up for her and I just kind of point at the blanket. And I was like, we need to figure out how this is like physically possible. And she she was kind of panicking too because she like under... She believes in the concept of spirits and the concept of ghosts. But I don't believe she has any... She, she hasn't like had any interaction with them, I guess is a good way of putting it. And so we, you know, took down the blanket. The blanket had been tied to the lights that were strung up like around the crevice of the wall in the ceiling meeting. Mm-hmm. And so it had been tied to the blanket and then the blanket was just like propped on the fan. And so we spent probably the next like 30 minutes just trying to get the blanket to hang back up in that same spot. Like if we tied it together and tried to hang it, it, nothing that we did would work. It was just kind of there. And so we were like, okay, how did this happen? What's going on? And that's when we were like, okay, shit's about to go down in this apartment, isn't it? You know, like what's going to happen? And this was all right before COVID. We moved in July, 2019. And then like that night, I remember hearing the fridge door just open and close, open and close. And I was like, what? the hell like how many snacks do you need in a night I'm like I'm a snacker too like I always want to get snacks before I go to bed but I my roommate woke up the next morning and I was like 
hey, <laughs> what, what was going on last night? And she was like, what do you mean? I didn't leave my room. And so she had never left the room. The fridge was opening and closing. And then the next day, like all the knives were spread out all over the floor in the middle of the night too. So like all of these weird things just started happening, but I couldn't see anything yet. Mm. And I don't, I don't remember at what point I started seeing them. I think it was around the time Soph started to hang out with us. So it was probably around when COVID hit, probably February of 2020. That's when I started to see figures. And I've described it to you before, but they look like they're wearing a morph suit, like either in white or black color. And they're not totally like solid figures. Like you can't see through them necessarily, but you can tell that they're not like totally solid. And I would see those standing in the corner of the room or I could like feel an energy in certain areas of the apartment. And that was a totally new concept for me that I had to wrap my head around when I was living in that apartment because, you know, you don't know what it is, right? Like I was like, am I, am I schizophrenic? Like, do I need to go start, is something wrong with me? And I would ask, you know, my roommate, like, oh, can you see these things? And she was kind of like, no, but I can feel something weird. And she started dating someone who is a a generational witch. And so, and so when Soph comes over, she immediately was like, oh, what's going on there? And she immediately saw them. Wow. And I was like, okay, this is good. So yeah. I'm not crazy. You know, like, which, that's okay if I am. Take some meds and I'll be good to go. But it felt nice to kind of have someone else be able to see the same thing that I'm seeing. And she was able to interact, interact with them. So, like, she used to play hide-and-go-seek with them. She would knock on the door, like the front door, waiting for us. And they would knock back. No way. Yeah. And you could all hear it, the knockback? I, I wasn't there. Oh, she gotcha. was the one who was telling me about this because she thought that I was in there messing with her. No way. And then me and my other roommate walk up behind her and we're like, hey, what's going on? And she was like, you're not inside? And we're like, no, we're right here. Like, what's going on? She goes, I've been knocking on this door and someone's been knocking back at me for about 30 minutes. I'm like, what? <laughs> First of all, why are you knocking for that long without questioning it? <laughs> but then, yeah, it turns out like she's able to interact with them. And so it's, that's kind of where my first interaction with spirits started to happen was in that apartment. Uh Whereas I just kind of saw the ghost at my childhood home, but I wasn't really able to interact with her. This one, I was more able to interact with. What was your view of those spirits? Like, was it positive? Were you scared? I was absolutely horrified because you don't know what they are. Like at first you, you really don't know. And what I, what I've learned, cause I mean, when you're sitting in an apartment for about a year by yourself or quote unquote by yourself, like with my roommates during COVID, you have a lot of time to think about that kind of thing. Right. And so what I started to notice is like, at first I didn't notice the difference in shade, whether they be, you know, darker color or lighter in color. But then I kind of started to notice the lighter in color ones. He would just kind of stand by the TV while I was watching the TV And I call him a he just by default, but I'm pretty sure he was a he. Anyways, I would kind of see him just kind of standing by the TV, not really doing anything, not really mischievous, just kind of hanging out. Whereas we, me and Soph saw this one. He's a crawler. So he only crawls to move around the apartment. He's not, he doesn't walk. So anyways, he would crawl out of my closet. And every once in a while, I would wake up to hearing my name absolutely screamed into my ear. And I would wake up and I would like hear my roommate be like, are you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. But like she heard it too. It wasn't just me hearing like my name screamed and like my ear kind of tickled as if someone had just whispered in my ear. And I think it was this crawler. He would crawl out to like kind of where my bed was, scream my name and mess with me a little bit. And I I would imagine he's, he's the one who would like open the fridge door and hang my blanket and like do all of those things that are a little bit more mischievous. Mm. 
But I, I kind of caught on that they're not evil. They just kind of wanted to stir things up a little bit, you know? And so I was less scared of them once I was able to wrap my head around that concept. Because I think if they were evil, they would have done something more aggressive than, you know, the things that I stated. Because, I mean, I, I don't really believe in demons. I don't really believe in those. But I understand, like, the, the drive behind doing something a little bit more devilish, you could say. And, like, they didn't have that. It was just kind of like they wanted to mess with me a little bit, see see what I would put up with, see what I wouldn't put up with. Mm. And then once Soph moved in, she had like a she had a seance at one point because he was pushing the limits a little bit on like screaming my name in the middle of the night and like doing all kinds of things like that. So we had a seance and he stopped messing with us a little bit after that, which was positive. And then I would just see them walking around, standing at the end of the bed, that kind of thing. Mm. Crazy. Um, <laughs> that's wild. And so then how about as you moved into your new house, have you had any encounters? So the one, the one thing that I was told by Soph, cause she, you know, knows a lot about this is that the mirror that was in my closet, like the closet was a hotbed in my last apartment. Like if you wanted to see a spirit go in there and like, you'll, it'll happen. And so we looked at this mirror and she was like hundred percent. That is like how they're accessing it. Like their portal, so to speak. Um, so when I moved into my new house, I thought long and hard about this mirror and whether it was coming with me or if I was going to sell it. And honestly, like I couldn't sell it and feel right about that. Cause I would feel bad for whoever bought it. Some people probably would eat it up, but others, you never know. So I left that mirror in my garage. And now when I see them, they're in my garage mm. or like in the backseat of my car or something like that, which again, it's not necessarily scary, but it's just kind of like, why are you out here? Like, get out of my backseat. I got I got places to be. So anyways, I, I last week, I think I saw probably two in my bedroom, which I didn't love, but they were more lighter in color. And so I kind of knew that they weren't going to do anything to me, knock on wood. They were just there to hang out, see what was going on, that kind of thing. But it wasn't like such a friendly energy, which like that's what I'm used to. It was kind of like a they're testing the limits again, maybe. So I'm a little bit nervous about what that's going to look like in the coming couple of weeks and months. And I think I told you I had an intruder alert last week where um, my security alarm went off because they sensed motion in the dining room, which I, I love having my security system. But I'm kind of like, is that who they caught? Because, you know, I, I went, did a lap around the front or not the front, the top floor and the bottom floor. And there was nobody there. Like there's nobody in my house. So is that maybe the motion that they sense? Like, are the ghosts hanging out up there? Maybe like, I, I don't know really what happened. Maybe it was just a false alarm and that's that, but I'm intrigued to see how this plays out. Have you ever tried to communicate with them directly? So I was told to do that by, I think it was like a psychic that I saw when I went to Salem, Massachusetts once he was like, if you need to, you know, like, draw a boundary with them you need to talk to them as if they are you know just like literally an intruder in your home tell them like they are not welcome here anymore they need to leave and you're not going to put up with it anymore so I did try that a few times because I just wanted to set a hard boundary that like you are not to come near me because one of my other friends like she had she saw razor blades being removed from a razor that was in her shower while she was showering and like no one was doing it. The razor blades were just like removing themselves. And I didn't want to get to that point where it's more of like an evil Mm -hmm. something going on. I just kind of wanted to be like, look, I respect you. You respect me, but you need to remove yourself from the situation. So that's the only time I ever really tried to contact them is when I feel like they're pushing a limit. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to be able to communicate with me necessarily because if I open up that door 
it might not just be the friendly ones, you know, that want to talk to me or share something with me or even have me communicate something to you or communicate something to a friend of mine, you know? If it's, you know, my uncle who passed away, sure, yeah, you're allowed to come talk to me, but you don't get to really draw that line. And so I'd rather not open up that portal of communication and just kind of leave it where it is at right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. dangerous, dangerous game to play. It's like, it's like playing with a Ouija board. I won't, <laughs> I won't do it. <laughs> Is it hard for you to be open with other people about these experiences? I would say in the beginning it was because people are like, you're psychotic. You know, like that's everyone's first go-to is like, oh, she's actually just crazy. But most of my friends, I'm not a liar. Like, you know what I mean? Like everything I say is very truthful or at least that's how I strive to be. Mm -hmm. And so when I share this story with people, they can sense like my sincerity in what I'm sharing with them. Like they know that this is what happened to me. If they were in the same situation, it probably wouldn't have happened to them. And I don't know if it's because I'm more open to it or what the, whatever the case may be, but I would say most of the people that I choose to surround myself with now are not the type that would judge me for it or consider me to be psychotic or like schizophrenic or, you know, whatever yeah. the case may be. One and so I get lucky. One of the reasons why we're friends. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got lucky in that regard because I mean, there are some people who I talk to where I can see their, they just turn off as soon as I start talking about it. And I'm like, peace. peace. We don't need to be friends then or not, not be friends, but like, we don't need to have this conversation. We can focus on our other common traits and interests and do that instead. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you've, you know, really figured out how to find your people and, and to, you know, keep building that confidence to talk about this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's something that I've really started to notice. And, and it gets back to what we we're talking about with the mindset of victim blaming. And I just it's a recurring theme I've seen throughout power structures is that a just dismissiveness of people who have had life experiences that you haven't is just endemic throughout our culture. And I think, you know, with with spirituality and I, I'm you know, shame to say, I, I certainly would have fallen into that category earlier in my life when I just believed in science and materialism and that there was no such thing as spiritual beings, right? And I've definitely come full circle to see how, how wrong I was. And I think there's something crazy, like over half the U.S. population has had an experience with, you know, angels or ghosts or ancestral spirits or some type of supernatural entity. I think I've heard something that like 25% of the world's population has seen a ufo in the sky and yet everyone is made to feel like they're the only one who are having these experiences and if you are willing to say something about it people just dismiss you as a crazy person yeah it's almost like it needs to be suppressed it's almost like a creativity in my opinion that needs to be suppressed and so it's better to just call someone crazy than actually consider the fact that their perspective on things might be the way that things actually go but yeah i've I've noticed the same thing and it's crazy how close-minded some people are, I guess I would say. And then there's other people like us where I was exactly the same way, you know, and like David Weiss was the same way too, right? Like he doesn't believe in something until he sees it and he sees the facts. But then once you see it yourself, it's like, oh shit, like (laughs) this is real, isn't it? Okay. All that stuff that I dismissed previously, tell me it again, because now, now I have an open mind and I want to hear about it and like actually be open to the fact that that might be how the universe works. Yeah. And it's so cool. It's It's, so cool to learn about it. But the whole paradox of it, because I've had that same exact experience, but the paradox of it is that as you start to have these experiences firsthand, the people who don't believe in you, you sound crazier to them, right? Even though you're like, no, I've actually had way more proof because I'm living it. And so, I don't know, it's, it's just interesting. And, it, it, and you mentioned the word schizophrenia before, and like I, 
I hate how that term can be used. And if are, are you familiar with the concept of non-locality of consciousness? I'm not. So really interesting concept, but has to do with this theory that the universe works like a quantum hologram, that we have this collective consciousness and through that, you know, the brain is part of that hologram. And so while we perceive consciousness to be localized, to be our own, that's mainly because we're so often drawn into the world of our ego and the world of our senses. But then as you go back to a state of pure consciousness, you recognize that consciousness is not local, that there's consciousness in everything. But again, the more you're able to access this plane and, and recognize that there's other folks who have access to your consciousness as you have access to other aspects of consciousness, Again, it just makes you sound schizophrenic. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I don't, so, yeah. there's nothing against the people who, you know, do have schizophrenia, you know, like that's valid too. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all so interesting to me. I can get so caught up in my own thoughts. Like once you start going down this rabbit hole, it's crazy. Did we, did you ever see Last Night in Soho? Uh. Okay. Last Night in Soho. It's, it's a, a newer movie. It's with the gal from Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah, okay. um, yeah, so she's just, you know, a killer actress. Yeah. Amazing. And, you know, I'm not going to ruin anything, but while you're watching that movie, she sees some figures throughout it. And that's exactly what the ghosts look like to me. Like, that's, it's exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fun to find out that the girl, you know, does have some mental illnesses. I've been checked on all those fronts and that's not it, but we do see them exactly the same way, which is very interesting to me because as soon as I was watching this movie, I was watching it with a friend of mine who's familiar with, you know, what I see and the way that I see the world. And I was like, that's them. Like, that's exactly what it looks like. And, you know, they just kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs> and I was like, if, if you ever wondered like what I see spirits to look like, that's it. Mm. And it's kind of like a human but the colors are just all very dull and the same and like big black spots like over like where their eyes are. So it's not necessarily like a full human, but it's something in between. Like it's, it's something in between where you can't quite figure out their identity. I wish I could figure out their identity though because like my uncle passed away in 92 and I never met him because I was born in 95. He actually never even met my sister because he passed away in February. My sister was born the same year in June. And so, you know, he was all excited for my mom to have my sister and everything. And then he unfortunately didn't make it to her birth. But I would love to interact with him. if he Because every once in a while, that guy who used to stand next to my TV, I was like, his name is Buddy. I used to wonder if it was Buddy. You know, I was like, does he just want to watch TV with me? Because if that's the case, by all means, sit down next to me and let's have a time. Because, like, I've always wanted to meet you. My mom said that, you know, I would get along with him super well. My dad said the same thing. And so, yeah, it's just, it's it's all interesting to think about, like, bigger picture-wise. Yeah. And so I know that crystals have been something that you're interested in. And how did you discover them? How have you found ways to incorporate them into your spiritual practice. Yeah. So when I first moved to Denver, I had left Texas Christian, graduated in May, moved here later in May. Like I had, I had no turnaround time at all before I started my new job. And it, I had gone through a breakup of sorts, you could say, around that time as well. So emotionally, I was all over the place. Like I was not well. And so I went into... I guess you could call it a metaphysical store. It's not the one that I love now, but I went into a different metaphysical store and instantly the shop owner came up to me and she said, is it okay? Like if I, if I touch you, I was like, okay, like what are, what are you trying to do? You know, like, let me understand it first. And she said, I can just feel your energy and it feels like you're going through a lot. So I'd like to just do some energy work with you. 
And so I was like, okay, like your intentions are positive. Yes, you, you can touch me. And all she wanted to do is put a couple fingers or like her palm on my chest. And she just wanted to put her peaceful energy into me because I was not having that at all. And instantly, as soon as she started doing it, I started crying. It was like a full release of, I think, just like a lot of pent up sadness, scared. Like I was, I was scared of everything at that point. I hadn't even met my first friend in Denver yet. And so it was just a very stressful time. And so as I was walking around her shop, I, I was feeling a little bit better because I had gotten out, you know, that big just rush of emotions and it was a metaphysical store. So she had all kinds of herbs and crystals and everything that you could want. And I was just chatting with her about life and she just recommended like, hey, if you want to, this is what I would recommend you get today. If you just like want to start easy and see how it goes. And I think, I think I picked up like a clear quartz some CBD oil and like a couple other random things. I don't, I don't recall what they were at this time, but I started with that. And like the CBD oil was new to me. I had never smoked weed. I had never tried CBD. I had never done any of that. And so I was kind of like, "Mm, I'm not a druggie. Thanks though. (laughs) You know, like I was a little bit like against it at the time. And so anyways, I started doing that and I really liked the CBD. It allowed me to just kind of like relax a little bit. And then the crystals What's interesting to me about crystals is like as soon as she pointed me to where, you know, the crystals were that she would quote unquote recommend for me, once you pick them up like and you have them in your hands, it's almost like a tingly feeling if you pick the right one, in my opinion. Like I'm always looking at the basket and I'm very like, I want to find the prettiest one, the one that shines the most, the one that whatever. And sometimes I pick up that one and I'm like, this is it. This is the best one in the basket, but I'm holding it and I feel nothing. And then maybe I see a little one who's a little rusty and, you know, he's kind of in the bottom and maybe people have picked him over a bit. Uh, And I pick that one up and my whole hand kind of starts to tingle and like something feels different for me. Mm. And so I pick that one up and I'm like, okay, that's the one. And like, I'll just go and I'll do that. I'll pick up two at a time and I'll, you know, A or B. A, okay, great. Pick up a new B. A or B. Okay, B. All right, try a new one, you know, until you find the one that you like. And the concept behind it is interesting to me because I do believe that everything in the universe basically has energy, right? And I I feel like it's, uh, one of the laws is that like energy can either be created nor destroyed. And so I believe that crystals are formed via this energy in some way. You know, I'm not a physicist. I don't know how things work, but (laughs) you know, each crystal holds its own energy, holds its own energy, its own vibrations and things like that. And so when you're holding it and it's having that effect on you, in my opinion, that's what you need at the time. And so now I have dozens of crystals at my house and, you know, yeah, I like the way they look to me, <laughs> but I have them all over my house. And so now when I know that I kind of need a little bit of something, I'll go and I'll just pick up a few and I'll figure out which one kind of feels the best to me. And then maybe I'll go and do like a, a Reiki healing session on YouTube. Like I love Reiki healing sessions. I do them every single night as I, as I fall asleep. I have for probably the last 600-ish nights. (laughs) And you just do like, it's like a meditation almost? Or how does that work? Yeah, I just put my TV on, put Uh on a sleep timer, and there is a YouTube creator and Patreon creator called Loon and Nate. Okay. Um, And she is a Reiki master. And so she has, you know, tons of videos that she's posted over. I've, I've known about her for like three years maybe. So she posts a new video like every couple days on Patreon. She posts longer forum videos, so maybe like three hours long. And it's all energy work by proxy. And so the the concept is, is that as long as the right intention is set, the energy work can be done through a channel like your TV. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're like 
That's playing wild. along, you could say. You could do it in your bed while you're watching this. And if I have the same crystals that she's working with on the screen, then I could be like really in it while I'm like laying in my bed or whatever. Mm-hmm. You almost will fall asleep, guaranteed, the first couple times you try. But then once you get used to it, you kind of get into like this meditative state. And I'm not a meditator. You tell me to sit down and clear my thoughts, it's not going to happen. <laughs> like it's, it's not going to work. But I can focus on an intention for uh-huh. that long. Uh-huh. And so if her intention is cutting cords and releasing energy that doesn't serve you like that I love because I get totally caught up in thoughts that don't matter and I'm a classic overthinker right and so in order to get out of that trap I guess you could say you could do these meditations and so that's when I started doing them during COVID because I found Luna Nate and just went to town on her (laughs) so now I've seen all of her videos so many times and I love them because it just brings me so much like so much peace and like I like being able to have the intention of releasing what doesn't serve you and it's also ASMR so if you're an ASMR person Mm -hmm. it totally hits all of those like tingly spots in the back of your head which I've always been so susceptible to like since I was in high school my AP environmental science teacher used to talk to me it would make my whole head kind of like almost like a squid, like a massage in the back of your head. And it would just make you tingle in the nicest way. Weed also does that sometimes. <laughs> like it's, it's a very particular feeling. And Loon Nate gives that to me. And so I love doing it because I get to meditate. I get to set the intention that I want to set. And then I also get that really cool feeling on the back of my head that I like actively seek out because I love yeah. it. Like that like octopus like, yeah. scratcher thing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just like the scratcher. Like yeah. if you put it in the back of your head, like that whole tingle that you get, like that's, that's what mm-hmm. ASMR gives me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people like it, right? Because like it makes you so. feel amazing. Could you explain what ASMR is? Okay, so I don't actually know what it stands for, so I am not the person to ask, but... ASMR, it's like when someone is kind of like on a microphone. May I do it here? It's like I have nails, so I probably could. It's kind of like when you talk like this and you start kind of hitting it like that. And it like makes your head tickle. Like I hope that worked or else I just seem like a psychopath. But um, (laughs) like they always kind of have a microphone like this and they like tap it or like rub their fingers like this or like they have a spray that maybe like you like the sound of the spray or whatever right by the microphone. And the way that it impacts like your brain, I guess, is it just makes you feel tingly and relaxed. And so people like it. Like if you go on TikTok now on any of the live streams, all of them are going to be ASMR. It's like people with slime over a microphone or like with a makeup brush, just touching it and like whispering and like rubbing their fingers or whatever. It's like, it's kind of a weird thing to do, but the end result is that it just makes the listener feel very relaxed and like at peace. And so that's why I like it. Well, I am 100% going to have to try that tonight. You should. You <laughs> yeah. should. Go to Luna Nate. She's, she's amazing. I love her. It's a full moon tonight, by the way, also. so Charge your crystals. <laughs> if, you, if you want them to work appropriately, they need the right energy and the right vibrations. So charge your crystals under the full moon. You should be doing that every full moon. <laughs> there you go. The more you know. Well, Mackenzie, this has been so much fun. Thank you again for coming and doing the interview tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. I like it. Yeah, awesome. Me too. I'm glad you had fun and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Deal. Deal. Thanks everyone for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
I wanted to thank Mackenzie again for being so brave and talking about her traumatic assault, especially since we live in a society that prefers to sweep these events under the rug rather than addressing them directly. It's my firm conviction that only by shining a light on the dark can we recognize the light. I hope Mackenzie's story helps other survivors of sexual assault and rape know that they are not alone and that we believe them. On that point, I wanted to dive further into how we've perpetuated a culture that allows rape and sexual assault. A society where violence is seen as sexy and sexuality is seen as violent. A culture where both men and women assume that sexual violence is a fact of life, inevitable. And for the women, men, girls, and boys who come forward to accuse their attackers, too often the knee-jerk reaction is to accuse them of lying for attention or falsely trying to get their attackers in trouble. In fact, research suggests that false reporting only occurs 2-8% to of the time. However, the perpetuation of victim blaming in our rape culture can often cause survivors of assault to not report the attack. Not to mention the fact that these assaults are highly traumatic events that the survivors, of course, never wanted in the first place. How could you not empathize when they prefer to deal with the trauma and move on with their lives instead of being dragged through a lengthy public legal battle? Yet what is undeniable is that rape and assault remain widespread throughout our country. It is estimated that one in three girls and one in six boys will be sexually assaulted by the age of 18. Of sexual assault victims, the Justice Department estimates that only 23% are reported. So again, to summarize, 77% of actual rapes and assault go unreported, and of the 23% that do get reported, only 2-8% to 8% are false accusations. Yet we still live in a society that blames and dismisses the victims. And unfortunately, perpetrators of sexual assault have found another effective tactic to silence victims, defamation lawsuits. Equality Now has witnessed a global rise in defamation lawsuits used to retaliate against and silence women who speak out about their abuse. It is a tactic meant to intimidate, discredit, and silence victims and future victims of sexual violence. If I was some kind of conspiracy theorist, I'd think we have a criminal justice system that protects powerful, wealthy men over the rest of the population, including survivors of rape and sexual assault. So what can we do to change this? I hope that men in particular take heed of this advice from Marshall University and the Center for Relationship Abuse Awareness. Because our prevalent rape culture is a legacy of the patriarchy that has dominated human society for far too long. The recommendations include, number one, if someone tells you that they have been raped, believe them and be supportive. Number two, avoid using language that objectifies or degrades women. Number three, speak out if you hear someone else making an offensive joke or trivializing rape. Number four, think critically about the media's message about women, men, relationships, and violence. Number five, be respectful of others' physical space, even in casual situations. Number six, let survivors know that it is not their fault. Number seven, hold accusers accountable for their actions. Do not let them make excuses like blaming the victim, alcohol, or drugs for their behavior. Number eight, always communicate with sexual partners and do not assume consent. Number nine, define your own manhood or womanhood. Do not let stereotypes shape your actions. And number 10, be an active bystander. I'm optimistic that as our society confronts these issues, platforms like Me Too continue to gain momentum and survivors of assault come forward, we're laying the groundwork for a world in which rape is unacceptable. That will start to hold the attackers and institutions that explicitly or implicitly defend them, like Wake Forest University, accountable for their actions. And that will embrace a culture that respects individual sovereignty over one's own body, 
understands consent and accepts that no means no.